28 years ago, I was a youth pastor in Northern California, and uh, we had a big youth group. So usually at every youth meeting, we'd have well over 100 raucous, hormonally um, enhanced, largely by whatever, uh, hormones raging teenagers. And the, the worst, the most problematic, usually always sat in the back. And I tried everything to get them to just shut up and listen to the Word of God. I shaved my head, I ate a live goldfish, I refereed a live chicken wrapping contest, I, I told entertaining stories, I tried to entertain them, I threatened them, I promised to reward them, made a golden throne out of an old toilet, we called it the, the golden throne, and if they were good, they could sit on the golden throne and hold the golden scepter, which was a plunger spray-painted gold. I entertained them, I made deals with them. Most importantly, I presented the very best uh, arguments to them, and still the kids in the back row would just not shut their mouths and, and listen. They didn't listen till one Monday night. They did. But they didn't listen to me, they listened to Jeff one of our volunteers. If you saw Jeff, you'd think, well, there's a model citizen. He had been a star football player in high school, great grades, wonderful wife. He was the kind of person that you'd want your kids to model their, their lives after. But this night, he stood in front of the youth group with tears in his eyes. He told us about a time in his life when he lay on the floor of his apartment for three days and did not move. He did not eat. In fact, he had surrounded himself with instruments of death, uh, knives and, and pills and anything else because he just, he, he longed to die three days. He had never told anybody this story, not even his wife until a few days before this night at youth group. He, he shared that although he had professed Christ in high school, a friend in college had um, enticed him into selling a little cocaine, and he did. Before long, he found himself strapping cocaine to his body and flying back and forth between San Francisco and San Diego, enthralled with the money and the power and the adventure. He had made himself uh, like a king, the king of his own kingdom. He felt like he was king of the world. Until one particular day, about eight months into his newfound occupation, he sat in the back of a limousine, talking to a supplier on the other side of uh, smoke glass in the front of the limousine. He told the supplier that he was having trouble collecting from one of his uh, accounts, and the supplier began to lecture Jeff. He, he shared this, how he began to lecture him on his need for discipline, and Jeff didn't know what he meant, and so the, the, the supplier clarified. He, he spelled it out. He said, well, Jeff, if you'd like me to have him killed, I will. And all at once it hit Jeff like a ton of bricks. He wasn't a success. He was a drug dealer arranging a murder. All his life, all his history, all of his chronology, he suddenly realized it all led to this. His kingdom of accomplishments was an illusion. Went back to his apartment fell on the floor and sank into the abyss. And now, fighting back snot and tears in front of the youth group and the kids in the back row of the youth room, he told of those three days lying on the floor in his apartment, absolutely horrified at himself, paralyzed with fear and shame. Three days. So very aware that he just needed to die and wanted to die. 
He said that on the third day he muttered a prayer. God help. And on the third day the phone rang. It was his old youth pastor that he hadn't spoken to in years, that had no idea what was going on in Jeff's life, but something in his old friend like called to something in Jeff, and Jeff made a choice. More accurately, I think you could say that God made a choice in Jeff. He repented. He believed the gospel. He would die with Jesus, and God would raise Jeff and Jesus from the dead. He was saved. And the kids in the back row of the youth room, they shut up, and they listened. What I mean by that is they didn't try to, to listen because they, they should listen. They, they just did listen. They repented. They entertained a new thought. Perhaps reality is not as I have imagined it to be. Jesus came preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like, like we talked about last week. Repent does not mean try harder. Repent means think differently. Get a new mind. Uh, reality is not as you have imagined. This week, we come to Revelation chapter 10. It's referred to as an interlude between the sounding of the sixth and the seventh trumpets. For the last two messages, we've been preaching on the sounding of the seven trumpets at the opening of the seventh seal. Remember, when we see the high priest making uh, atonement for us before God, we said that the seven trumpets, they like resound back through time, space and time, the seven days of space and time resound back through time as hope. Uh, they sound as the walls of this world come crashing down. And so we see storms and volcanoes and a falling star and darkness and a plague of demons and a plague of armies. The sixth trumpet is blown and chapter 9 ends as follows. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. All that, and they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see, hear, or, or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their pharmakeia is the Greek. It's, it's where we get our word pharmacy, and it refers to things like cocaine, buying and selling cocaine, or their sexual immorality. Porneia is the Greek. It refers to buying and selling sex, as if it were not a mystery, but a commodity that you could control. Or, or their thefts, which of course is just seizing control. Six trumpets. A world of calamity and humanity does not repent. Still, the kids in the back row will not shut up and listen. Still, Jeff lies on the floor of his apartment wanting to die. So chapter 10, verse 1, it's the end of the sixth trumpet, just before the seventh trumpet, just like the end of the sixth day of creation, just before the seventh day when everything, everything, everything is good, uh, just like the end of the Friday, the sixth day on which the Son of Man is crucified on a tree, just outside the walls of old Jerusalem. Then I saw another mighty angel, writes John, coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like 
pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open, open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. So the face of this angelos, which means messenger, is like the sun, just like Jesus' face in Revelation chapter 1. He stands on the land and sea, which means he's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the land of Israel and across the sea, the nations. His voice is like a, a lion roaring. There's only one lion in the, in, in the book of the Revelation. When he speaks, the seven thunders sound. Seven thunders, like the voice of God in Psalm 29 and John 12. Uh, you Remember when Jesus prayed, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, glorify your name. God spoke. Some people understood it. Other people said, no, that was thunder. This angelos acts just like the manifest glory of God in Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3, who gives Ezekiel a scroll and tells him to eat it and prophecy this sweet, and he said it's going to be sweet and sour. He looks and acts just like the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 and 12. At the end of Daniel, you know, the Son of Man, he descends, raises his hand to heaven, swears an oath regarding the time of the end as he says this to Daniel. The words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And now this scroll is unsealed. Almost all commentators agree this has got to be Jesus. And Jesus is the end. In his hand is a bibliridion, uh, which is a small biblion a small scroll containing words. The, the scroll may be the same as the one that's in the right hand of, of God, or it might be a smaller version of, of the same. I, I, I think maybe it's the Bible, maybe it's the Revelation. Whatever the case, it contains the Word of God, the words of God, the Lago of God, and it's open, it's open. The big scroll in the right hand of God, sealed with seven seals, is also open. This is the end, descending into space and time with meaning, meaning in his hand. This burning angelos roars like a lion. The seven thunders sound, verse 4, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Don't write that down. I, I love that. <laughs> It's still a mystery. We see Jesus, we see the end, we see and hear the word of God, but we still can't comprehend all that he means. There's always more than we know, and God is always better than we thought. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes this, listen. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul makes it clear that he is that man. And yet he's like not that man. As if he himself is more than we know. As if he himself is far better than we ever imagined. In Galatians he wrote this, wrote this, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus the Christ is the beloved Son of God in whom God is well pleased. Jesus. And do you remember this? Jesus had a nickname for John and his brother. Do you remember what it was? 
Yeah, sons of thunder. Boanerges, son of thunder. Verse 4, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore an oath. That's what the word means. Swore an oath. He swore an oath by him who lives forever and ever. Jesus commanded us to never swear an oath. James says, above all, never swear an oath. I think that's because there's only one eternal oath, and it forms one eternal covenant, and Jesus is that oath. His body and blood form the covenant. Verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore an oath by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more chronos. Chronos. Delay is how the ESV translates it. The King James Version translates chronos as time. Do you know why? Because that's what it means. It's where we get our word chronology. It's one event happening after another event in a series that we refer to as time. In chapter 1 we read the kairos is at hand. Kairos is another word for time. It means meaningful time, like an, like an event. Chronos is chronological time like a calendar. So the kairos is at hand and chronos will be no more. Chronos appears 53 times in the New Testament, and this is the only place it's translated delay in the ESV and the rest of the modern, most modern translations. Early church fathers argued that this angel marks the boundary of eternity and chronological time. That is, we're talking about the end of time. But most modern translators can't seem to even conceive of the end of time or an eternity that would continuously invade our temporality. Eternity invading time is a mystery. And commentators, modern commentators, feel obligated to explain away every mystery with our perception of space and time. Verse 5, and the angel whom I saw saying on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore an oath by him who lives forever and ever, that's ages and ages, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there should be no more time, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, accomplished, or finished, Teleo. It's the same word that Jesus uses as he hangs on the cross at the end of the sixth day, on the edge of the seventh day, and says, it is finished. In the days of the trumpet call, as if the end would be present in time, the days of the trumpet call, to be sounded by the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God would be fulfilled uh, from Teleo, just as he announced to his servants the prophets, so like God has been talking about this throughout the Old Testament, then, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me saying, go, 
Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, the angelos, and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat, and it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But then I had, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and languages, nations and, and languages and, and, and kings. What is John to prophesy? Don't you suppose it's the contents of that scroll that he's supposed to eat? And what are the contents of the open scroll he's supposed to eat? Well, well, don't you suppose that somehow it's what this angel called the mystery of God? And have you ever asked yourself that question? What is the mystery of God? And ever since the Enlightenment, people in the West have been taught that mysteries are myths. They come from the same word in Greek, that mysteries are myths, and myths cannot be true. Modernity taught us that the only things that are true things are things that can be explained. And yet truth itself cannot be explained. Which logically means that modernity is a myth that cannot be explained for there is no such thing as truth and therefore modernity cannot be true. See, you can only make sense of things by assuming some things that make sense of you. Like truth or I amness existence. Things like logos and love. So perhaps the mystery of God is something you can't explain, but explains you. Something you can't comprehend or control, but can comprehend and control you. Perhaps the mystery of God is not the absence of meaning, but the meaning of all meaning. The meaning of all space and time. And perhaps we've like crucified the meaning in an effort to make the meaning comprehensible to modern people as well as something that could be controlled by modern Christians, which would be us. Thankfully, modernity is dead and dying, and that's largely due to science. Physicists now say that the entire cosmos, all of space and time, that is, all that is natural. And, and remember we said, hey, that kind of reminds us of this, this seven-sealed scroll, that all of space and time must exist within something. All of nature must exist within something that's not natural, but supernatural by definition. There's something supernatural on the other side of the Big Bang, which is everything natural, all the laws of space and time. And there's something supernatural in you, uh, for there's something in you that cannot uh, be explained and, and actually in, in some way determines other things. There's something in you that determines the, 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 the quantum state of subatomic particles. 
mind-boggling stuff. In other words, everything not mysterious is dependent on a mystery. In fact, physics is now certain that we are fundamentally uncertain. So that delta x equals the square root of 0.077a squared minus zero, from which we derive the square root of 0.077a squared. And also, the uncertainty in p is equal to the square root of bracket p squared minus bracket p squared, which also equals the square root of h over a squared, which lets us delta x delta p equals the square root of 0.077a squared h over a squared and 1.74h bar, okay? The uncertainty principle. It proves we can't ever really know what's going on. But even though you can't figure anything out, you will be responsible for it on the midterm. <laughs> yeah, that's it. We can't know unless we come to know maybe some other way. He's explaining the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, and I'm just explaining that for the first time, and I think maybe hundreds of years, maybe we could just believe Scripture without using our inferior judgments of space and time to explain away the judgment of God and the Word of God, our Father. What I mean is that maybe you are not a bastard. The accidental result of 14 billion years of physical processes floating somewhere in space. I mean, maybe you're a son of thunder. Whatever the case, this Angela swears that time will be no more. And in the days of the seventh trumpet call, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. What is the mystery of God? Mysterion is the Greek word. It's used 27 times in the New Testament. With uh, the sermon manuscript that we'll post on the website, we're also going to post a sheet that has all the instances of its use in the New Testament so you can read it. I think it's really fascinating. Mysterion comes from the Greek word muo, and this is what muo means. It means shut your mouth. <laughs> shut up. Seriously? Shut your mouth. What is the mystery of God? Well, soon we'll read that the great whore of Babylon is a mystery, 2 Thessalonians, Paul refers to lawlessness as a mystery, and you know, it is a mystery. In the beginning, God speaks, and his will just, it just happens. But on the sixth day, humanity does his, its, its own will in opposition, in opposition to God's will. God said, you will not eat the fruit. And we did. How was that possible? It's a mystery. There's a mystery of lawlessness, and then in 1 Timothy, there's a mystery of godliness, which is faith. So according to Paul, faith is not just like something you can understand. It's not simply your, your choice. Faith is a mystery, more like a, like a miracle. According to Paul's letter to the Colossians, this is the, the mystery. Now he's using an article. The mystery hidden for ages and generations. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In all of Paul's letters, he talks as if hope in you, and especially faith in you, is somehow Christ in you. In Galatians 1.16, Paul wrote this, that when he was called to the ministry, you know, by Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's talking about that, um, that by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and now I quote, God was pleased to reveal his son 
in me. It says in me in the Greek. Which seems to mean that Jesus was on the outside of Paul, calling to like a hidden Jesus somewhere buried deep inside of Paul. As if in some amazing way, Jesus had always been in Paul. As if whatever Paul then had done to Paul, he had also done to Jesus. As if whatever you do to the last and least of these his brothers, you actually do uh, to Jesus. As if Jesus then was calling to Jesus in Paul on the road to Damascus saying, Wake up and rise. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. In the words of David, deep calls to deep at the thunder of thy cataracts. Psalm 42. I had a fascinating experience recently praying for a friend struggling with demonic oppression. And in situations when her, like hers, when things are manifesting, I don't know, I really just don't know what to do. I'll, I'll pray in tongues. And, and at first, something in her reacted violently to that until that something was like reduced to nothing by the words on my tongue and I, and I think the presence of Jesus. And, and then my friend, I think at that point, unaware of what was going on, started answering me in tongues. As if the Jesus in her was responding to the Jesus in me in this other language. It was another language, but every now and then I'd hear her say, Yeshua, Yeshua, that wasn't a demon. That was another spirit, Christ's spirit. Yeshua, Yeshua, it was the deep in her calling to the deep in me, Jesus talking to Jesus in me. And then she had this amazing vision and encounter with Jesus. Years ago, praying for the friend I mentioned last week who was wed to Satan, ritually wed to Satan, this one time we, we prayed our way into a memory that she did not want to remember. She uh, heard the sound of muffled cries coming from a closet in which she had been abused. When through prayer she finally gained the strength to open the closet, well, she didn't find herself bound and tied in that closet. She found Jesus bound and tied in that closet. And the message was clear. As long as she refused to love her beaten and battered self, she refused to love Jesus buried in her beaten and battered self. But by loving that abused self, the Jesus in her adult self freed the Jesus in her abused self, and then both were free, and both had now become one in joy. The mystery is Christ in y'all, says Paul. And he uses the plural, y'all. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in y'all, the hope of glory. He talks as if Christ has been hidden in the depths of all humanity and will be rising in all humanity as faith, hope, and love. Not human judgment, but God's judgment in humans. And so it's not my choice that determines God's judgment, but God's judgment that creates my choice, my good, free will, a mystery. Now remember that the revelation was sent to the seven churches in Asia Minor, who all first heard the gospel from St. Paul in 
Ephesus. So when John writes mystery of God, they would have thought of the mystery in the letter to the Colossians. Uh, Colossae is in Asia Minor. But even more, they would have thought of Paul's letter to Ephesus, where Paul taught all the residents of Asia in the hall of Tyrannus for two years, according to the book of Acts. Ephesians 1.7, listen to what Paul writes here. In Christ we have a redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite anakephaliah, bring together un under one head all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The mystery is that all things are somehow coming together under one head as one body, which is Christ, Christ's body. Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel, the Gentiles. Not some Gentiles, but the Gentiles. Furthermore, in Ephesians, uh, even though the, Gen the Ephesians were Gentiles, by the end, Paul refers to them as no longer Gentiles, for Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility in his own flesh, the one body circulating the one spirit, the one breath, in one river of life that is our Lord's blood, uh, under, uh, quote, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. One body that would inherit all things in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3.8, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone, bring it to light to everyone, for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. See, Paul thinks it's like this incredible privilege to proclaim to the whole world this good news. It's as if he's convinced that Jesus himself lies dormant in like every person, uh, perhaps like a seed that lies dormant and broken and dirty ground. And when Paul preaches the gospel, that seed is like activated or germinated as faith, hope, and love. And then the logic of Christ begins to animate the body of Christ, and the life of Christ begins to flow through the members of that body like blood. When all the members of the body bleed life as love, the whole body is joined in a communion of ecstatic joy as all lose themselves and then find themselves in joy. Ephesians 5.32, Paul declares that sex in the covenant of marriage is a mystery. And this refers to the great mystery of communion in the eternal covenant that forms the body of Christ. Ephesians 3.9, the mystery hidden for ages uh, in God who created all things so that through the church, this manifold wisdom of God, and remember Christ is wisdom in flesh, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities. That's the principalities and powers of this present darkness, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.19, the mystery of the gospel. Understand? No, but Paul is saying that when we preach the mystery of the gospel, we deliver a message to the devil and to his demons. And the walls of this fallen cosmos come crashing down like the walls of Jericho at the edge of the promised land at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. 
Well, of course we want to know, okay, cool, but when will this happen? This is the amazing thing. It has happened. It is happening, and it will happen. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus tells a parable about seed, and then he says to the 12, to you has been given the mysterion, the secret, the mystery of the kingdom. Like we talked about last time, Jesus came preaching, repent, change your mind, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's like right here, right now. Luke 7, he says this, look, the kingdom of God is within y'all. Repent. You can't make it come if it's already here. If you think you can make it come, you don't know what it is. And you won't recognize it when it appears. You must repent. So like we've been talking about, when we look at the world, we normally see something like this, right? Remember, six billion souls only binding together to protect individual rights and thereby preserve their own death. Been preaching about this for the last two messages. This is a picture of the kingdoms of this world, the principalities and powers of this present darkness that tempt us to create covenants of self-interest and walls that divide. These kingdoms are temporal, and this isn't actually life, but death. When Jesus, John, and Paul talk about the kingdom of God, it's like they're seeing something more like this. Not just six million souls, but six million cells, all interconnected by one judgment in one body, with each sacrificing the self for the other selves in this ecstatic communion called life. The life is eternal. The kingdom is eternal. This good news, the gospel, we will find, is also eternal. So, do you believe the gospel? What do you see? Can you see the kingdom of God that is at hand? Or can you only see the kingdoms of this world and six billion, seven billion lonely souls? At the sounding of the seventh trumpet in the next chapter, the 24 elders on the 24 thrones cry, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms, our kingdom of our God and of his Christ. In Ephesians, Paul refers to each of us as already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That would be his body on a, on a, on a throne. And, and yet, look, you're seated right here on these, on these kind of, well, I don't know, they're kind of comfortable seats, but, but, but what, what gives? I mean, that's a at the boundary of the sixth and seventh trumpet, like the boundary of the sixth and seventh day of creation, which is the boundary between this age and God's eternal Sabbath rest, at the boundary, Jesus stands on the land and sea and makes a covenant, swearing that Kronos will be no longer, but in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, finished, the seventh trumpet. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he cries, it is finished, and yet 2,000 years later, there's so much that just does not seem to be finished. That's, that's a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall change. For this mortal must put on immortality. The last trumpet is the seventh trumpet. Paul writes that we have come to the end of the ages, the ions in Christ Jesus, and that there, at his cross, we die with Jesus and rise with Jesus. Jesus dies at the end of the sixth day and rises on the eighth day, which in Hebrew thought is this eternal, endless seventh day. At the cross, we receive what? Eternal life. Ionios life. The life of God's age in this age, eternity in our time. And so I sure hope that you remember this picture. This is how Genesis and the Revelation seem to view time. All of space and time, creation itself, is like the revelation of Jesus over uh, the span of seven ages or ions or creation days. And on the seventh day, everything is good. That's Genesis 1.31. That's God's judgment. And that's the Word of God, and that's, that's Jesus. Jesus is the end and the beginning according to the revelation, and Jesus is the eternal logos that creates and upholds all things at the cross as Jesus cried, it is finished, and gave up his spirit, eternity invaded time. See the arrow from the end going to the tree on the sixth day of creation when Adam is made in the image of God? So time will come to an end for all. But time has come to an end for you when you walk in faith. John 17, this is eternal life, knowing him. Faith in him is Christ rising in you. And faith in us is the body of Christ rising in this world, the body. When you walk in faith, you begin to see this. And not only this. And when you preach the gospel, you do this. And the walls of this world begin to crumble. Eternity invades time. You see, that's, some, that's a space-time boundary. And the walls of this world begin to crumble because the walls of one lonely soul have begun to crumble. The last two weeks, we preached a mystery. We preached that a self-centered lonely soul like this can become a self-sacrificing and loving soul like this. And how does that happen? This is the mystery, but it appears that Christ has descended into the depths of the human soul as a seed. And when Christ in you preaches the gospel to that seed in them, deep calls to deep. And Jesus rises in them as faith, hope, and love. That's repentance. It's coming to see that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand, and the kingdoms of this world are an illusion that will soon fade away. 
You see, Paul and John described the process as waking up. We have each dreamed the dream of our own sovereignty, of our own kingdom, our own king dominion. That's what it means. We have each dreamed that we are our own creator, savior, and redeemer. We have each dreamed that we have no father, no progenitor, which means which we, each, we each have no brothers and sisters. We've dreamed that we are utterly alone. One particularly challenging day back in 1994, my particularly strong-willed daughter Elizabeth, five-year-old daughter Elizabeth, was having a particularly difficult time because her brothers and sisters were not doing what she told them to do. And her mom and I, well, we were telling her to do things that she did not want to do. And so at one point, I remember her looking up at me with these tear-stained cheeks, just screaming, I don't want a daddy! I don't need a daddy! I don't need a mommy! I don't need a daddy! I don't want a daddy! And so I said, okay, as you wish. Then all afternoon, I ignored her. Didn't, didn't listen to her. Of course, I didn't really ignore her. I didn't really not listen to her, but I let her pretend that she didn't have a daddy and that she was the king of her own kingdom. Of course, she was in my house eating my food constantly under my protection, but I let her dream, a little dream of her own sovereignty. At dinner, I didn't talk to her. And I could tell she was just absolutely miserable. After dinner, she, she begged me to let her go to the store with her, and, and so, you know, of course I did. But when we got in the car, I didn't look at her. I was totally silent. And then as we sat there, silent in the car, each like in our own loneliness, all of a sudden she just began to weep and to wail, and she literally picked herself off the seat and she threw herself across my lap screaming, I want a daddy! I want a daddy! I want you to be my daddy! <laughs> See, I think our entire life in this fallen world is like Elizabeth's bad day in 1994. I think the Father has let you dream the dream of your own sovereignty, and now that dream is turning into a nightmare. And the situation is like this. He's got the whole world, the whole chronology, he's got the whole world in his hand, and he's got your chronology, he's got you in his hand as you dream the dream of your own sovereignty, but now the dream is turning into a nightmare, and so he speaks a word into your dream. And the word is Jesus. Has your life become a nightmare? <laughs> if so, this is the good news. It is. But in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you'll wake up. We must all wake up eventually. It's, it's conceivable to me that some may sleep for maybe hundreds or thousands of years in a dark place where men weep and gnash their teeth, but we must all wake up. And by faith, you can wake up now. 
And when you wake up, your dream won't be wasted. The experience of your nightmare will make you love reality all that much more, and your empty chronology will be filled with all the fullness of God. We see, when we proclaim the mystery of the gospel, you speak the word of the Father into a child having a nightmare. You're saying, repent. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's right here holding you, surrounding you, calling to you. Wake up! You're not a bastard. You're a son. You're a daughter of thunder. A beloved child of God. You see, to dream that you have no progenitor, no father, is to dream that you're a bastard. And if you think you're a bastard, listen closely, you've swallowed a lie. You're dreaming. Now, I'm not recommending this for families. You hear me, mom and dad? But the last month, I watched all seven seasons of the Game of Thrones as I walked on the treadmill. All seven seasons in preparation for season number eight. Everyone that watched all seven seasons cannot wait for the eighth season. Spoiler alert, okay? They can't wait for the eighth season primarily because they want to watch and they wish that they could be the one, that they could be the one that gets to tell Jon Snow, Jon Snow, you're not a bastard. You inherit the Iron Throne. Your father was the king. See, John grew up thinking he was a bastard. That's the story that's been going on for seven seasons. At one point, he's betrayed by his brothers for letting the wildling tribes through the wall that supposedly separates the good people from the bad people. He's murdered for that. And he even rises from the dead. The entire world is caught up in a battle to seize control, to seize control of the Iron Throne, but Jon Snow cannot seize the Iron Throne because he has already inherited the Iron Throne. He just doesn't know it. Well, throughout the seventh season, we do know it. But John doesn't know it. He's the son of the king and therefore rightful heir to the throne. You see, that news is the gospel. The good news. We live in the seventh season. We live in the day of the seventh trumpet call. And uh, this is the gospel that I think we're called to preach. You're not a bastard. Your daddy is God. You can't seize the throne, because <laughs> check it out. You inherit the throne. All things are yours. You may act like a bastard, but, but you're not a bastard. The truest thing about you is Jesus. So the way God feels about Jesus is actually the way God feels about you. Believe that you're loved, and you will love. You actually are the body of love, the body of Jesus rising in this world. So repent. Wake up. Well, anyway, John is told to eat the scroll and prophesy. Revelation 19.10. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. See, as Jeff stood in front of the youth room, shaking and bawling his eyes out, he testified to Jesus. He testified to the mystery of God and the kingdom of God. When we pastors preach and teach, we're often testifying to ourselves. 
trying to build our kingdom, and our kingdoms look something like this. So we entertain, threaten, and argue to convince you that church A is better than church B. That's nothing new. It's just more death whitewashed as life and love and then advertised in the Denver Post or wherever. It's a kingdom we choose, comprehend, and can control. But Jeff, Jeff testified to a mystery. He, he could not comprehend a mystery that he could, not, he could not control. A mystery he could not choose except for that it was a choice uh, that was given to him. He was chosen to choose, a choice rising in him. He did not testify to his own will. He testified to God's will. He testified to the grace of God and Christ Jesus, his Lord. He testified to the kingdom of God that is at hand. And the kids in the back row, they shut their mouths. And they listened. It was sweet. It was so sweet on Jeff's lips as he spoke the words. And I know that it had been sweet the moment that he first believed when he ingested the scroll. But as he shook and sobbed, everyone could see that, oh yeah, it had been bitter in his soul. Because he had ingested the scroll, all of his walls had, had come crashing down. You see, because he really believed God is salvation, he could no longer believe that Jeff Reinhardt is salvation. His own self-centered and arrogant ego had to die. And that, my friends, oh, is hard to digest. But once it's digested, it returns to your lips as a testimony of praise, a testimony to Jesus. The kids in the back row repented because they heard the testimony of Jesus. We're, we're out of time, and we're going to need to pick this up after Easter, but this is the testimony of Jesus. On the night he was betrayed by us, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant, the eternal covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is sweet. And yet it can be hard to digest. It means that the walls of your ego, your resume, that will all come crashing down. But if you digest it, you will preach it. And it will be sweet on your lips as you do, for you will be prophesying a mystery, the testimony of Jesus. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. Believe the gospel, ingest the gospel, and you'll speak the gospel. Amen. Lord God, thank you for waking us up from a nightmare that you are not good. And so we build walls and we run and we hide in darkness. Thank you, Lord God, for whispering into our nightmare. And thank you, Lord God, that one day, very soon, we will be entirely awake. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.
You know, when I was a kid, I would have nightmares, and they used to really terrify me. But the older I get, the better I am at separating reality from what I'm dreaming. So I'll have a dream, and there'll be snakes and all kinds of crap, and in my dream, I'll think, ah, this isn't real, and I, it won't bother me. And God is even me leading me deeper. I mean, now as I get older, I dream about church meetings going bad and people hating me. But, but I'm, even then, I'm able to go, yeah, it's a dream. It's a dream. And you see, I think we're supposed to do that in life, and that's what preaching the gospel is about. We, we just sang that song, Proclaim His Coming, and then we sang His Glory Fills the Whole Earth. And that might confuse you because you say, which is it? Well, it's both, but one is more real than the other. In fact, the word coming in, in Greek that's used for Christ's second coming is this word parousia, which originally meant in the Greek, and it still does mean, mean his effective presence. So you're proclaiming that he's, he's present, but uh, when the parousia happens, everybody's eyes will be open and they'll see him. So your job as a preacher is really to proclaim something to people having a nightmare, and that is you're not a bastard. Your daddy is God, and he's right here. He, he loves you. And, you. and you see, that's different than saying, well, you're not a bastard if you meet the terms and conditions of this contract that, that I have here, and you decide not to be a bastard. No, the, the gospel is you're not a bastard. Soon you're going to wake up. In fact, you could wake up right now if you believed. So in Jesus' name, May you preach the gospel. I mean, maybe, maybe you could even do that in the next couple weeks and invite people to come on Easter, okay? I could just be building my kingdom, but there may also be something about the gospel in there. I don't know, but just to tell people. And, and you see, if you, sorry, I'm starting to preach again. But if you, see the, if you see the world that way, do you see what I'm saying? If you see the world that way, it changes the way you talk to people. That's the gospel. Okay? In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. If you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team are down front. They'd love to pray with you.